Amen. Kids, you're dismissed to go to your classrooms. For the rest of you, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 3. Judges, chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 31 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to thank Pastor Jerry for preaching the word last week. Just really appreciated his discussion of the dangers of following after false gods and how that compares with the one true God. Just really powerful how he showed the false gods that they just demand that you give and give and give and give until you've given everything of yourself over to the false gods. And comparing that and contrasting that to the one true God who gives everything of himself to us so that we can have eternal life. So thank Thank you so much, Jerry, for your faithfulness in preaching the word last week, and I am super excited to dive back into the book of Judges this week. It's always nice to have a week off, and then about uh, Monday, after I haven't preached on the following Sunday, I'm kind of itching to get back in, and so let's do that now. We'll we'll, uh, pray. Please bow your heads with me, and we'll pray, and then we will jump into Judges chapter 3. Heavenly Father, God, just echo those words, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's not me, it's Christ in me. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we're in awe that you would even hear our prayers, much less act on our behalf. And you do it, and you do it for your name's sake. You do it for your glory. So we just stand here and sit here this morning in awe of you, in awe of the access that we have to you, Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Son, interceding on our behalf. We can't fathom it, God. We can't understand it. And we take it for granted far too often, so forgive us for that, Lord. Give us a humble awe as we come before you and we come to your word. As we approach it, may we approach it like food. May we feast on it this morning. Paul says in Romans that he has been given grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Not only the obedience of faith, the obedience in believing in you and following Jesus. The obedience of faith for the sake of your name, God. It's not for us. Ultimately, it is for the sake of your name. To bring about the salvation of all the nations. And you will do that, God. So may that be our heart. May that be our prayer. And as we come to your word this morning, feed us, God. May we not be trying to feed on lesser meals. It can't fill us up. It can't satisfy. Just like the false gods, it just demands more and more and more. Your word satisfies, God. And that's only because of your spirit applying it to our hearts. We thank you for that. We love you. Guard my mouth. Guard my tongue as I preach it this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage this morning tells the stories of the first three judges. Remember, when we talk about judges in the book of Judges, we're not talking about people with the robe and the gavel and making courtroom decisions. We're talking about leaders that God has raised up to deliver Israel when they find themselves in sticky situations of their own doing. And so we're going to hear the stories of the first three judges this morning. We're going to spend most of our time in Ehud because that's what the author spends the most of his time on. So, but we're 
going to be talking a little bit about all three. And I'm going to quiz you now, and we'll see how you do. Because a couple weeks ago, I told you that there was a certain word that I wanted to come to your mind when I say the book of Judges. If you don't get it now, it's okay. We'll keep practicing. But on the count of three, I would love for somebody to be bold to say, what is the word that I want to come to mind when, I, when you think of Judges? One, two, three. All right. Hey, that was pretty good. Good job. Well, Pastor David was the most confident. But uh, anyways, that was pretty good, you guys. So it's a cycle. Right? Now everyone say it on the count of three. One, two, three. Cycle. That's right. And the cycle of rebellion, repentance, and then it repeats. So the people of Israel rebel against God, and these consequences come on them, and they repent of their sin, and then as soon as their consequences go away, they forget the Lord again, and they dive right back in. And you remember, just like the little boy in Emily's Sunday School class, we're going to have ourselves saying, why do they keep doing that? Why do they keep diving into the same cycle of rebellion? And it's going to reveal to us a lot about our hearts as we study it. This first judge, Othniel, the story is, is interesting because we don't really have a lot of detail from Othniel. It's kind of just like really the bare bones, like skeletal structure on which the rest of the book of Judges is going to be built. So this is like the frame of the house, essentially, without any sort of added details. This is just the frame. This is the skeleton. This is the bare bones structure. What we're going to see as we go through uh, this story about Othniel is we're going to see how this cycle is then going to continue to play out as we study the rest of the judges. My little sister was here this week for, we call it Camp Indiana whenever she always comes to visit in the summer. And uh, she uh, is getting older and I can't believe it, but she's about to get her driver's permit. And that's uh, always kind of a, a scary time, especially for parents if your kids are about to get their driver's permit. And uh, so I remember uh, when I was learning to drive and getting in the car with my parents and, and no offense to my parents, but I think there was some tense situations in that moment. There were probably some words said that shouldn't have been said and uh, things that probably needed to be forgiven afterwards. So anyways, we were thinking maybe with my sister here and she's about to get her permit. She'd never been behind the wheel of a car before, so we thought maybe we would have her uh, It'd be a little bit less stressful to do that with your brother for the first time than when with your parents, is all I'm saying. So we hopped. You might have seen us, actually. We came here at first, and there was softball practice going on. We didn't want her to have to be dodging softballs in the parking lot. So we went to the elementary school parking lot right out front. And so if you saw, you're like, why is Pastor Mike just doing circles in the elementary school parking lot? That was what was going on. And uh, so she got behind the wheel, and we showed her how to adjust the seat and adjust the steering wheel. And that's where the pedal, that's the brake. You just use one foot you know for each you don't use two feet and this is kind of what it feels like to turn the wheel and uh, then she just kind of slowly did like I said just did circles did a circle and stopped and then did another circle and stopped and the reason that we did she did a pretty good job there's a couple some of these you know when you hit the brakes you're getting used to how sensitive the brakes are but after a little bit she did a great job and uh, all that to say is what we were doing there was kind of showing her this is what the act of driving feels like this is what you should expect to feel when you get behind the wheel. Now, when you're actually driving, there's a million other things you have to account for. You know, merging onto a highway is a whole thing. You're trying to figure out those roundabouts. Some of y'all are still trying to figure out how to work those roundabouts when you go down to Carmel. But, the, like, those are all things that are uh, just added on to just the basic act of driving. So we, at first, 
wanted to show her what this is the basic act of driving. All that to say, that's a very long-winded explanation, to say that that's exactly what the author of Judges is doing here by putting this story first, right after the introduction. He's showing you, this is just, this is the bare bones. This is what's going to happen. This is what happened with Israel here, and this is what's going to continue to happen. He doesn't add in any extra detail. He's just showing us. And so as we look at this first story of Othniel, very briefly, we're going to see the cycle in action. We've been talking about it, and now we're going to see the cycle in action. So look with me at Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. You'll see what I mean. And the people of Israel, verse 7, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So here we go. The people of Israel have forgotten God, they've disobeyed, and they are uh, following after false gods. So we just see straight disobedience. I forgot to include this on my PowerPoint, so just imagine that that says disobedience right there on the front. We see just straight disobedience from Israel. They forgot the Lord, they worship false gods. They don't tell us any more about what that worshiping false gods looks like. They don't tell us any more about forgetting the Lord, what that looked like. They just, this is it, they disobeyed. Moving on, verse 8, we see God's response. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathim for eight years. That's my best stab at that name. So we see the second thing, which is God's discipline. God's discipline. God became angry with Israel and gave them to the king of Mesopotamia, and they were in bondage for eight years. So we see disobedience, and then we see discipline. Now, all I'm going to say about this is it's not necessarily bad news. One commentator said it's not good news, and it's not bad news. It's good bad news. In other words, like it's not good news for Israel to be sold into this uh, country, but uh, this cushion Erishlachim, but... At the same time, what it shows is that God has not forgotten his people. That's what God's discipline does. He could have very easily just let them go, right? And let's, I mean, let's think about this. God knew the cycle. God wasn't surprised every time he delivered Israel and then they dove right back into that old cycle. He wasn't surprised about that. He knew in the deliverance of Israel that they were about to go back into disobedience once again. And so God, knowing the future and knowing the disobedience of worshiping false gods, he could have very easily left them, right? But he didn't. He didn't. And that's why his discipline, it's not good news, but it's not bad news. It is good, bad news. News. That's how God's discipline works in our lives as well. God's discipline is good, bad news. It's not pleasant to be disciplined, right? It's not fun, and yet it shows God has not given up on you. That's why he gives us a conscience, right? That's a gift of the Holy Spirit that he gives, that we have a conscience so that when you are in sin and that thing is going off in your head, says, I got to get out of here. I, not, I should not be doing this. Or after when, when you sin and you say, you just you feel the weight of the guilt of your conscience. Like that is God's good gift to you. And the Bible tells us that our consciences can be seared as we ignore them time and time again. So don't ignore your conscience. Let me just, uh, let me just spur you on and say, don't ignore your conscience because you might be thinking I don't really feel my conscience anymore I've been in sin for so long that is not good (laughs) 
God's discipline is the good bad, good, bad news for us. So that's what Israel experiences. He could have left them, and he could have just given up on them, but he didn't, and praise God. And praise God that he doesn't give up on us. Amen? Amen. So we see God's discipline. And in this case, the discipline causes them to repent. So God's people repent, and God raises up a deliverer. Raises up a deliverer. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So this is Othniel. One quick, cool note about Othniel. This is, so it says Caleb's younger brother. You remember Caleb, when Moses was about to, when they were scoping out the promised land, he sent a bunch of spies into the land, and they all came back with a bad report, right? All but two. They all said, these people are huge, and they're too powerful, and there's no way we're going to defeat them. We're too puny, and it's just not going to happen. But two Two men, right, came back, and they said, God's going to deliver us. We know it. And that was Joshua and Caleb, Joshua and Caleb. And so now we see almost this, like, legacy of faith in Caleb's family that not only is Caleb faithful to God, but Caleb's younger brother, Othniel, is faithful to God. God takes notice of this faithful family. I think that's just kind of a really cool side note that we see in scripture. So God raises up this deliverer. Verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim. I wish that they didn't have to say the name five times in this passage, but that's okay. All right, so the Holy Spirit comes upon Othniel in a way that we all have the Holy Spirit now, but God's people back then didn't have the Holy Spirit. In fact, there's places in the Old Testament where they say, if only all of God's people have the Spirit, and it's prophesying Pentecost, which is why we have the Holy Spirit. But back then, not all of God's people had the Spirit. The Spirit would come upon different leaders in Israel to empower them to fulfill God's will. And it's amazing to think that now we all have that same power by the Holy Spirit. It's really cool to think about. So God's Spirit comes upon Othniel and they're successful and the people are delivered. They're delivered. So we have the disobedience, which leads to God's discipline when he raises up a deliverer and then the people are delivered and then the last part of the cycle is that the deliverer dies. Verse 11, the land had rest, excuse me, 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. 40 years of peace, and then the deliverer dies. And you can imagine what's going to come next now that the deliverer has died. Israel is going to jump back into that same cycle. So we kind of, this is almost like a structural note of the book of Judges, that he wants us to see, we're talking about the cycle. This is why I say it's all about the cycle. The author of Judges wants us to see this happening right at the very beginning. So he's almost showing us like a marker saying this is what is going to come. There's going to be other details. There's going to be other weird details. Our next story this morning, there's going to be some gross details, okay? But this is the bare bones structure that we see in the book of Judges. And with that said, we're now going to move into one of the weirder, grosser stories of the Old Testament, which is the story of Ehud, the left-handed deliverer. You guys ready? 
I'm going to jump into this story now. You might remember a couple weeks ago I asked you, like, when we are studying the book of Judges, I really need you to, like, take off your shoes, not literally, but metaphorically take off your shoes and put on your goatskin sandals and, like, put yourself in the mind of what it would have been like to live at that time. And so that's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning once again. I think it's easy. Let's just, let's just be real. It's easy to kind of come in and listen to a sermon and just kind of passively be listening, try to get some things to apply to your life and, and move on. And I understand that. But all, all I'm saying is, like, to get the most out of this, you're going to really need to use your brain and think about what it would have been like to be living in Israel at this time. And the reason why that's so important for this story is because ultimately, this is a very funny story. There's a lot of humor built into this story. It's like a, a caricature, if you will. But if you don't understand what's going on, you're going to miss the humor that is in this story. So go ahead and let's put on our, uh, our Israelite sandals and let's jump into the story of Ehud. Sound good? All right, here we go. We're going to go verse by verse here and we're going to see the humor that the author is trying to convey and then at the end we're going to apply it to our lives. So look with me at your Bibles. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's the disobedience right there. We don't exactly see what it was at this point, but we see they're disobeying once again. Continuing on, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the discipline. We're starting to see it. They're wandering away. Boom, here comes God's discipline. He strengthens the Moabites against Israel. Verse 13, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The city of Palms is Jericho. It's Jericho. I don't know if this comes across. It's been a while since I've seen Josh in the Big Wall, the VeggieTales version of this. But this is like, the Jericho was a kind of like a resort town, okay? And you remember how Israel miraculously conquered Jericho by marching around seven times, blowing the trumpets, walls go down. And, um, and now... After all that, it's been captured again by Eglon and the Moabites. And so they're kind of hanging out in this resort town, if you will, Jericho. Verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Okay, so this is the first thing. Well, you, need to, you need to think about what would that have been like. Like, you know the stories of how God gave Jericho into your hand, into the hand of your family, of your people. And now you know that you've been disobedient and that God is punishing you. And now 18 years, that's a long time people 18 years what was that 2003 that was a while ago right so from then until now you have been serving this king Eglon and we're going to find out more about him in just a moment God's people rebelled they're punished and then what do you think they're going to do next they rebel and then they repent right verse 15 then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Finally, lefties get some credit in Scripture. I mean, come on, I'm a lefty. Raise your hand if you're a lefty. Where's my lefties? I knew I liked you guys. I knew there was just something about you all that I liked. So yeah, finally, we get some credit for lefties in Scripture. And this is going to become very important, as we'll see in a minute. But God hears their cry, and he raises up a deliverer for them. And here we're going to get into the meat of the story. 
the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So this is essentially like they're paying taxes. So Eglon is hanging out in this resort town, and he's having all these people that uh, they have been that they've conquered. He's having them all like bring them a bunch of food, basically. And so they just like, that's what Israel would do to show like, hey, we're still under you. We understand that. We're gonna, we're not trying anything. Like we're gonna pay this tribute to you because we recognize that you've captured us and that's what we need to do. And so they send Ehud to bring that tribute to Eglon, this king of Moab. And this is where it starts to get good. Because one of the things we need to have our ears tuned to is the fact that the author is not at all painting a flattering picture of Eglon or the Moabites. So he's just like roasting them, okay? And we're going to see this in just a minute. But we need, to, we need to be ready for that, that the author of Judges is just completely roasting Eglon and the Moabites. So here we go, verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges... A cubit in length, and he bound it under his right thigh, under his clothes. He's got like an 18-inch sword, and he's uh, put it, because he's a lefty, right, this is where it's important, he puts it on his right thigh so that you can uh, pull it out and uh, be ready to go. So the vast, vast majority of people were, uh, were right-handed, and so you would expect the sword to be on the left thigh and be able to pull it out. And so the insinuation here is that he's going to be able to sneak it past security because he's got it on his right thigh instead of his left thigh, which, okay, but this is the king we're talking about, okay? Like, the, like, he's going to see the king, and his plan to get his assassination weapon is just to put it on his other leg, okay? What kind of security detail does the king have if that's gonna work? This is an enemy. Israel is their enemies, and he's gonna go and be face-to-face -face with the king, and he says, instead of putting it on my left thigh where they expect it, put it on my right thigh. There's no way they'll ever see it. There, that's his plan. I we just went through, we flew to Pennsylvania, we just went through security, we saw somebody have a Capri Sun confiscated from them, like they were going to do something with that. So like, that's just to get on an airplane, you can't have a juice box. This is to see the king, and to get his sword through, he just puts it on his other leg, because he's a left-handed man. What's he trying to say about the people that are surrounding the king? Yeah, they're not too bright, a little dense, and it worked. That's what's so amazing, It worked. They get through, verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. That's his pretense, right, for getting to be, to see the king. Okay, here we go. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. That doesn't really mince words, does it? Eglon, this king, it's a big dude. In fact, uh, one commentator said that that doesn't even, like, do justice at all. Like, he's not just a very fat man. He was, like, he said a better translation would be just morbidly obese. Like, hardly able to walk. Like, the kind of guy who just waddles like this to try to get around. Like, that's the kind of caricature that is being painted of Eglon. He's a very fat man. That detail will become later important to the story later on. All right. When Ehud... Had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So he sends away his people. So, so there's all these people. Okay. I didn't know if I was going to do this. I'm going to act it out, okay? Whenever Pastor Mike makes split-second decisions, that should make everybody nervous. Okay. So we're in this room. 
Ehud and his people are presenting this tribute. They just like bring a bunch of food to this fat king in a resort town, okay? That's what's happening. Like, that's what this king wants. Like we got to bring him food. So we bring him food and you got e- Eglon sitting over here on his throne and he's got his people around him. Ehud's over there with the food. He's got his people around him. We all good? So then Ehud walks in, presents a tribute, and then he tells the people that are with him, all right, go away. I want you to go away now. And so they all go away. So now we have just Ehud, Eglon, and Eglon's people. Verse 19. I love this. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. A secret message. And the king is just like, silence! Everyone, Get out of here. That guy's got a secret message for me. Imagine for me, with me. If you're going to assassinate a king, the president of the United States. That's your, like, that's your plan. And so you say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sneak my murder weapon in on my other leg. And when I get in front of president, I'm going to say, i got a secret message for you. And there's no way it's not going to work. I mean, a secret message, who's going to turn that down, right? I have a secret message for you, O king. So then the king's just sitting here. He's like, get out of here, everybody. This man has a secret message. Probably if we're watching, like, the movie of this, he's got, like, just a giant, like, piece of steak in his hand that he's just gnawing on, right? Get out of here. Secret message. And then Ehud is coming up to him. He's like, I have a message from God for you. And then Eglon's like, whoa. And so he's like struggling to get up like a message from God. And he's waddling over to Ehud. And then Ehud pulls out his sword from his, left th- from his right thigh and just stabs him. And then this is where it starts to get gross. Or if you are a middle school boy, this is where it starts to get awesome. Verse 21 And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Verse 22, the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. That is not one of our Everyman of Warrior memory verses, (laughs) but it's God's word nonetheless. So so he's gotten up because he's got a secret message from God. And then he just stabs him. And before he can even pull the sword out, it just like goes in. And then there's just feces everywhere on the floor. It's pretty gross. What happens next? Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked him. So he stabs him, kills him, and then he kind of gets out the back way. And then... These servants, which again, they're not super bright because they let Ehud in all by himself, an enemy with this king. (laughs) They're not super bright either. And so they're kind of walking up to after this, you know, they're walking up back up to the king. And it says that just because the doors were locked, but you can kind of fill in some details. They probably smelled something too, right? They thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So, oh, he's probably going to the bathroom. So they waited, waited, 
and waited. I don't know how long. I wish, I wish the author would give us that detail, like how long they waited. But they waited until, like, well, okay, he's still in there. Oh, man, that's, yeah, maybe he's on his phone or something. I don't know, but he's still in there. And, and uh, okay. And then they finally, like, this point comes where they're like, I don't know if it's hours. I don't know, but they're like, okay, there's no way he's just going to the bathroom. There must be something else going on. And because they just sat there and waited like a bunch of bumbling fools, that was what let Ehud get away. If they had kind of found, gone in right away, then Ehud, they would have found him. But because they're just sitting there waiting because they think the king's going to the bathroom, that was what allowed Ehud to get away. God's plan was for these guards to think that the king was going to the bathroom. That was how God designed for Israel to be saved. Isn't that something? That's our God. Like, that's what he decided. That's what he designed. This is how I'm going to deliver my people from this bumbling king and his group of yahoos that follow him. When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Verse 26, Ehud escaped while they were delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Serah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So once again, we see God's deliverance of his people. So we see this is the exact same cycle that happened with Othniel. We just have a little bit more color, if you will, than the last time. God raises up a deliverer. He delivers Israel, and there's peace in the land for 80 years. What a story, huh? I like, love this story in a weird way because the author didn't need to give us all these details. Like He didn't need to. In fact, whenever we read the Bible, we should kind of have this question in the back of our mind, like, why, especially Old Testament. Like, Why did the author tell us this? In fact, anytime really you, you hear any story, any movie, any documentary, anything, like, you need to remember that the creator of that thing has a perspective that he is trying to tell you. So there's a reason why we have these details. And we don't always get these details. In fact, look at verse 31 with me. We're going to look at the story of Shamgar. It's not very long. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. It's like, yawn, <laughs> killed 600 Philistines with a modified cattle prod and, and saved Israel. Like if a poor Shamgar, right? I'm like, man, I kind of got a raw deal if I'm Shamgar. You'd think that you'd give me a little bit more than just one sentence. But we didn't. We don't know what the details are. There's probably some gross, weird, gory details with killing 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. But we don't have those, right? But we do have the story of Ehud. So Why? Why? That's a good question. I don't 100% know, right? But I think there's some things that we can learn and some things that we can take away. So what can we take away from this story of Ehud and Eglon? And there's two things that I see in the story. First, I think we see that God's people are not immune. 
God's people are not immune. You're going to have to kind of go with me on this one. See, on the surface, we just laughed a lot at fat, fat Eglon and the stupid Moabites, right? Like on the surface, this looks like it's just absolutely lambasting Eglon and the Moabites, and it is. Like it very much is. But there's something underneath that that I think the author is trying to convey because Israel were the ones who had been defeated in the first place by this king by fat Eglon and the stupid Moabites. So really what we see here, even as as much as we see a caricature of just an incompetent, indulgent, like gullible, like uh, susceptible to flattery leader, we even be underneath that see a sharp and biting critique of Israel who could even allow themselves to be subjected to this king and these people in the first place. And it was only because of their disobedience. Like, how could they be so foolish that that guy could have defeated them in the first place? There's a lesson for us. That's just that God's people are not immune from falling. God's people are not immune. One of the most sobering places I've ever visited is the Holocaust Museum in New York City. I don't know if any of you have gone to that. I'd recommend it. You don't feel great. In D.C., thank you. Uh, you don't feel great uh, after leaving it, but it's really important to see, and it's just this incredibly sobering monument and, uh, and museum. It talks about all the atrocities that took place in the Holocaust. You see in one part, you see just like thousands and thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes that are just piled up from all these Jews who had been put in the gas chambers and killed. And when you go through this museum, you, you, see, you hear these stories. And you see at the end, they talk about the fact that this ex- museum exists to be a reminder of what happened in the past. And so that we don't make the same mistakes today. And you walk through the museum and you think, how could this have ever happen? In fact, this, there's no way this could ever happen today. And when you think that, when you think there's no way this would ever happen, that's one of the most dangerous places that you can be. And I think this story almost functions that way for Israel. Lest they be tempted to think we're God's people. We, we're too strong. We're too powerful. We've got God on our side. There's no way that an enemy as incompetent and bubbling as King Eglon and the Moabites could ever defeat us. Lest they be tempted to think that. They're reminded, this is the guy who defeated you. And it wasn't because of them. It was because of God. Because you walked away and you were disobedient and God strengthened them and allowed them to overtake you. So this is a sobering reminder for us that we are not immune from falling. We need to remember that. We need to remember that, I think, just in two ways. Like, personally, we need to remember that we're not immune from falling. Like, falling morally. I think one of the most dangerous things any of us can say is, I would never do that. I would never fall into that. That thing that that person did would never happen to me. We're not immune. We all know stories and stories and stories of people who fall and it's a dangerous place to be to think that that thing could never happen to you. That's why we need accountability. Like we need structures of accountability in our lives. That's why we exist as a church in part to provide that accountability so that we're not doing life on our own so that we do not fall into these traps that the enemy sets for us. We need to remember that we are not immune from falling morally but I think there's even a greater like a a bigger picture idea that we need to think of that we're not we need to remember that we're not immune like as a church in a large scale from falling into lies believing lies. 
I mean, how heartbreaking is it that slavery in America was largely perpetuated in a a lot of ways by people who called themselves Christians and even used God's word to support the slavery that was taking place in the South? Like, how just heartbreaking is it? Like, shouldn't that just break your heart that that happened? And again, you think, well, that would never happen today. We don't know that. We don't know. We can't just say, well, we're just immune. Like, like we, because we're following Jesus, we'll never just, like, we'll never veer off course. We can't say that. We need to be, like, humble and sober about this, sober-minded. We can. And I think there's kind of two different places right now that I see a danger of the church falling into lies. And the first is, like, from, like, a theological liberalism that denies the deity of Christ, that denies the inerrancy of Scripture, and that blurs the line between the church and the world. And you see that. You see Christians, that the church can become indistinguishable from the world in many cases. And that's a, that's a real danger that the church can fall into. And I think there's also like a far-right extremism that the church also has a danger to falling into. And this even disguises itself as Christianity sometimes and allows things like racism and nationalism and sexual abuse even at times like to just stay in the church and fester. We've got to say like we're not immune from any of that. We need to check our hearts. And remember, I mean, anyone can use any Bible verse to support anything they want to say. So, like, even that we need to be careful. Like, just because somebody says that, well, this is true and this is the Bible verse that supports it. Like, you can make the Bible say anything you want to. And people have used the Bible to justify atrocities for thousands of years. The church is not immune. I know it's not like a super happy message, but this is the message that was given to Israel, that you can fall even to the most, like these, the dumbest, most bumbling leader. Like you can fall into that, and we need to be on guard, and we can never say we'll never fall into that. And when we think that, then we let things fester in the church that have no business being here. So as funny as this story is, like this needs to be a sobering reminder to us that none of us are immune from falling. That's the first takeaway that we have as a church. And then the second takeaway, I love this. The story just shows us, I think, I tried to think of a good word for this. I couldn't really think of one, but like God's work is like earthy, earthy, like of the earth, like real and raw, right? And like God is like in the details, right? God's plan to save Israel was for Eglon to soil himself. That was a key part of God's plan. God is not like above anything. (laughs) He's in your life. And I think for, for me, I think just the thing is like there's things that maybe we just think like we need to just keep back from God. Like that's like like, that's not for God. We try to hide things. Things that we maybe want God to see and then things we don't want God to see. But the truth is the enemy is the one who wants those things to stay in darkness. And it's God who wants to, those things to come alight, to light so that he can bring healing in your life. God is not spooked out by the gross and nasty parts of your life that you'd rather keep hidden. We're kind of allegorizing this a little bit. But God's not spooked or afraid of those things. God wants all of you. God wants every part of you. God is earthy. <laughs> In fact, he, he, Jesus came to earth, did he not? Jesus knows the human experience, every part of it. Jesus doesn't know about this. Yes, he does. <laughs> he knows every part of the human experience. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. And on and on and on. 
mean, who serves a God like that who came to earth? It's like he can relate to every single experience that you would have. Praise God. He sent his son to come to earth, to be put to death, even death on a cross. He did that for you. His work is earthy. It's real. And he doesn't want you to keep back any parts of yourself that you think aren't suitable for God. It's all suitable for God. He wants all of you, and he bids you to come. If you don't know Jesus, man, follow him. That's all I can say to you. Follow him. Give your life to him. You're making a mess of it. He'll make it right for his glory. Follow him. He calls you to come. And this reality, this truth of Jesus coming to earth as a man is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church to be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for us, to remember the blood of Christ that was shed for our forgiveness, the very real blood that was really shed to really purchase our forgiveness. The body of Christ, the real body, the physical body that was literally broken for you so that you could be made and so this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together to remember not only what God has done for us individually, but what he's done for us as a church. And so let me just say, if you believe in Jesus, if you've been saved, if you're following him, then we want to invite you to participate with us. And if you're not yet following Jesus, we're, uh, we'd just like ask you to refrain. We're so glad you're here. But if you're not yet a follower of Christ, we would just ask you to refrain. This is something for believers right now. The way it's going to work is you'll be dismissed by rows from back to front. Where we'll ask you to come into the center aisle, pick up one of the two of the cups. They're stacked on top of each other, so make sure you get one stack of two cups with the bread and the grape juice, and then go back to your seat and just spend some time with you and the Lord, and then uh, in a few moments, I'll lead us in eating and drinking together.